And that's on page 842. 842 in the pew Bibles in front of you. Mark chapter 7. Man, it's great seeing you guys all here today. Uh, it's always wonderful just to gather with my church family and my brothers and sisters. Uh, I really do consider it a joy and a blessing. And we've been working through the book of Mark for quite, a, quite some time now. We're over 20 weeks into this book, and we're almost halfway through the book now. And so uh, we're in Mark chapter 7. The book of Mark is uh, the story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And in this book, we learn a lot about being a disciple of Jesus. We learn a lot about what it means to follow him. We learn how many times his followers fail him. A lot of times we misunderstand who Jesus is and his mission. And, and so we've been unpacking this book week in and week out here at the brook. And we find ourselves in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 is a switch in the story, and it points our attention to the idea of authority. I want to ask you, what's the authority in your life? What is the thing in your life that when it speaks, you respond? Now, there are various kinds of things in our lives that we are, that there are authorities over us. If we think of at work, it's our boss. We need to do what our boss asks of us in the workplace. We think of for our children, parents are the authority in their lives. Law enforcement are authoritative in our society to keep peace and keep us protected. There are various forms of authority, but ultimately, who or what are you accountable to, ultimately? What we see in life is that if the Bible and if God is not the locus or the point of authority in our lives, ultimately what becomes the authority in our lives is none other than us. We set the tone, we set the standard, and we let life revolve around us because we determine and dictate what life ought to be like. And what we've seen in the book of Mark and what we'll see today is that Jesus says the plans that we establish, the ideas that we communicate are faulty and shaky places of authority in our lives. You see, we are faulty and shaky people. We're broken and we are... uh, often misguided in our thinking. So when we become the ultimate decision and authority in our lives, we can stand on some really weak ground. And in the book of Mark, Jesus in chapter 7 points out this very problem in the religious leaders and the religious lifestyles of the day. And I want us to think about this. When you make a decision in life, when you make tough decisions, When you choose various things, do you do so through the lens of what God's desire for you in your life is? Or do you see it through the lens of what you think is best strictly for yourself? This is the challenge that Jesus was confronted with in Mark chapter 7. It's an interesting passage, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 to start out with. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. I'm going to pause there real quick and just let you guys know, who are the Pharisees? They were the religious leaders in Jesus' day who were uh, in charge of making sure the Jewish people were following God's laws. The scribes, they were the ones who, who would write down the law of God and transcribe it for others to make more copies. They're also responsible for knowing the law. These were two prominent religious groups in Jesus' day within the Jewish faith. 
Both of these groups were known to be very, uh, very holy in their context. People saw them as the kinds of people who had their lives together. But we see in the book of Mark, Jesus isn't too impressed with their show. And here we see in chapter 7, they come to Jesus, and some of them came from Jerusalem, which means Jesus is in a town north of Jerusalem, near the Sea of Galilee. And they saw in verse 2 that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. My kids do that all the time. Eat with defiled hands that are unwashed. But for the Jewish people, this was actually a very significant thing. You see, Mark is writing to a non-Jewish audience. And if you don't have Jewish um, bloodlines, then you are what uh, Mark's audience was. You're a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. And so Mark recognized that his audience were Gentiles. And as Gentiles, they weren't up to speed with this idea of washing hands or unwashed hands, making them defiled or impure. And so to clarify, in verse 3, he gives this parenthetical remark. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Literally, it means wash their hands with a fist, is what the Greek says. And what people think is perhaps they had this particular washing where they need to have their hand as a fist, in a fist and just kind of wash it like this, one hand over the other. Or maybe a fistful of water at the very minimum to keep their hands clean. But Mark says this is what the Pharisees expected, that they would wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition, can you say tradition? tradition. Of the elders. And when, they came, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions, can you say traditions? That they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Mark's like, all right, let me let you know here. They were mad that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands, and this was something that was common for the Jewish people to do. They washed their hands in a particular way. Not only did they wash their hands, they actually washed their whole bodies when they came back from the marketplace because there were unclean, ceremonial, unclean things at the marketplace. And so they also washed their pots and their couches in certain ways so that they could be pure when they ate their food. And so with that backdrop... Now we see the very crisis at hand. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition, can you say tradition, of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You see, the Pharisees and scribes were bothered by what they saw here. Jesus and his 12 disciples were having a meal, and they had dirt under their nails. They had some dirty hands. They weren't ritually clean in the eyes of the religious leaders. And in a condescending or even accusatory way, they asked Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher who has followers, why don't your followers abide by these rules? This wasn't a question seeking an answer. It was a question that accused But the problem at hand for them was that Jesus was not going by the traditions that the religious leaders had established. Traditions are interesting things, aren't they? They're things that develop over time, and they become standard in our culture. Chicago has traditions. Every St. Paddy's Day, they dye the Chicago River green, 
but can't ever find a way to diet clear. I don't know what's up with that. There's the tradition of deep dish pizza, the tradition of no ketchup on your dog, the tradition of a certain Chicago team not succeeding in October, the tradition of dibs on your parking spot after you shovel. Isn't that crazy? I hate that one. Some traditions, you understand how they develop, and other traditions, you're like, where did this come from? Well, in the Jewish faith, they had these traditions developed that the religious leaders established, and oftentimes, those traditions were meant to make sure people were abiding to God's laws. But as we've seen before, they put laws to make sure they didn't break other laws to not break the other laws. And I've used the example several times here of like telling your kid, don't run in the street. And you say, well, instead of making sure they don't run the street, let's make sure they don't ever leave the house. And so they're not tempted to leave the house, stay in your bedroom. You know, in fact, the door of your bedroom is enticing, stay in bed. So you don't leave the bedroom to leave the house to run in the street. And there's laws and laws and laws. And the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, created these traditions to establish laws. But the problem was, these traditions became the standard. And those who went beyond the traditions were viewed as unclean. Jesus has a problem with this. He's got a problem with their traditions and their ideas of cleanliness. But before addressing this idea of what's clean or who's not clean, Jesus wants to expose a deeper issue here, and that's one of authority. What is the authority in your lives? And the Jewish leaders would have said, it's the traditions of our fathers. They establish traditions, and that's an authority, and you break the tradition, you sin against God. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it goes. You see, in verse 6, Jesus makes a very condemning statement. He said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Jesus is picking a fight here. He calls the religious leaders hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah, who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition, say it again, tradition of men. Jesus says, the problem here is you have a tradition that makes you disobey even God's word. And you think you are better when actually you are rebelling against God. And he calls them hypocrites. See, the word hypocrite was taken from the Greek theater. Someone would play a part in the Greek theaters, and they would wear a mask for the different character they were playing. And someone who wore the mask but didn't do it well was viewed as a hypocrite. They didn't appear to be sincere. They weren't really working in character, and so they were being false in what they were displaying. And Jesus borrows this word from the Greek theater and says, hey, you religious leaders are putting on your own masks, but really underneath it, you're just an actor. You're, you're not really legitimate. You are giving the, uh, the, 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 you're giving people a perspective of you that was not ultimately accurate. 
Now, boy, man, you see those words and you hear those things. And if you're like me, you're saying, I've done that. I've been hypocritical before. But it's important here to understand what hypocrisy is and isn't. Man, there's been many times I've talked with people and been shared with them this hope of Jesus, that, that Jesus came to die for them and have invited them to be a part of our church family, and I want them to know this good news. And they say, I can't become a Christian because I don't want to be a hypocrite. In fact, this past game day uh, last month, somebody told me that very thing. I, I don't want to pretend to be a Christian because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to put my faith in Jesus because I know I'm going to fail. And I looked her in the eye and I said, look, a hypocrite is not somebody who fails. A hypocrite is someone who wants you to think they're better than they are. A, a hypocrite is somebody who wants to put in this idea that you're something that you're not. You're here today, and you are someone, I hope, who acknowledges that you are an imperfect person. That you are broken, that you have failures. But I guess that you are here today because you want to know something about Jesus. Maybe you want to grow as a follower of him. You want to understand what it is to worship him more in a more sold-out way. You want to give him all that, you're, that you are, all of who you are. But you know this week you're going to fail at that. That does not make you a hypocrite. You see, when we walk with this humility about us and we say, God, I know I will fail you, Lord, but I don't want to do it. I'm grieved when I do it. So help me grow, God. I want to love you more zealously. I want to follow you with more commitment. Help me, God. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when everyone in the world thinks you're amazing because you put up a great front, you wear a great mask, you've convinced them, and when in secret you are a wreck and you don't ever want to admit that. So I hope that you are freed today from this burden of hypocrisy. God doesn't tell us to play a game. This is what uh, uh, angered Jesus so much with the Pharisees and the scribes. They wanted everyone to look good on the outside, even have clean hands. But they never got to the heart. And Jesus says, stay away from that. Your heart is dirty. Acknowledge it. And he says, these people honor me with their lips. People hear them. They say, oh, this person's great. They love God, see what they're doing. They're, they're sold out for him. He says, but their heart is far from God. Their heart is far from him. We want to be a church here at the Brook where we don't have to play games. We don't have to pretend that we're in love with Jesus. And I love how, how Eddie mentioned in our call to worship today, we prayed about this even in our pre-service prayer with the worship team, that sometimes you wake up in the morning most times and you're struggling. You're, you don't wake up Jump out of bed, say, where's my Bible? I want to read. God, I want to talk to you. I'm so excited to be alive today. Most of us just don't do that all the time. And there are different times we do that. But we're broken people. And we fight. We get up in the morning and say, God, I need you. And right now my heart is wayward. God, I need you. We don't want to just honor you with our lips, but we want you to have our hearts. And so Jesus is just so upset with the religious leaders that make people feel that they got to put on a show to impress others and think that that impresses God. God sees beneath the mask. He's not fooled by it. And you know what? I'm grateful he never tells us to wear it. He says, come as you are. 
come as you are. And Jesus sees these religious leaders, and he's saying, you got a problem with my followers eating food without washing their hands, and your heart is filthy. But on the outside, you look clean. Religious ritual is a dangerous thing, church. Traditions are good. They can be a great thing. But when they become our standard over God's word, we're in danger. We're, we're, we're in a dark place. That's knowledge without passion, discipline without delight, fear without freedom. This is what ritual creates. And Jesus says, no, I want all of who you are. God wants all of who you are. And he calls the religious leaders hypocrites. But then Jesus gets even more specific. He says, you're mad that they, wash, they don't wash their hands. But he says, I'm going to show you how you blatantly disobey the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments by your traditions, and you seem to be okay with it. He says in verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. I love Jesus' sarcasm there, right? You have a real good way of disobeying God. You're really good at that. That's what he's saying. Well, they might say, well, how do we use our tradition to disobey God? Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things do you do. i got some unpacking here to do for you guys. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother so you live long in the land. To dishonor your father and mother is ultimately a death sentence on your life because what it does, it rebels from their protective hand over you. And, and, and it's dangerous. And God has given parents to love the Lord, to guide their children in that direction, and children who rebel from that are walking on thin ice. But even as adult children, we are called to honor our father and mother. Honor doesn't always mean you have to do everything they say as an adult. Because sometimes our parents are dishonoring God, but even in our refusal, we are to honor them, respect them, and care for them, and love them. And I know, just pause here for a moment, that this is a difficult word for some of us who especially have difficult relationships with your parents. Maybe your parents are no longer alive or in the picture. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that that, that this can be a very difficult uh, topic. But what Jesus is telling us here is that our call is to honor our parents even if they dishonor God. And what he says here is that the Pharisees, by their tradition, created a, a, a way of belief that frees people from the responsibility of honoring their parents. And this term is called Corbin. Can you say Corbin? And Mark says here that means it is given to God. Now what the Pharisees did was They created this idea, when you say something is Corbin, you're saying, I'm dedicating it to God. And whatever you dedicate to God, you cannot give to anyone else. But it is in your keeping as long as you're alive, and when you die, whatever it is, is sold and given to the temple because it's dedicated to God. What people started doing was saying different things in their lives were Corbin or dedicated to God so that they wouldn't be responsible of helping others with what they had. There's a story in the Mishnah 
uh, the Jewish tradition that was written down, where a man was upset with his father, and he declared the courtyard of his home as Corbin, excluding his father the ability to ever come to his house. But when this man had a son who grew up and was going to get married, they wanted to have the marriage ceremony at the house. And the grandson wanted grandpa to be at the wedding, but the grandpa was dishonored saying he could not be there because the house was Corbin. And this vow was one that could not be taken back. So what the son did, realizing he was wrong for excluding his father from the courtyard of his home, he gave the courtyard to a friend and said, hey, friend, this is now your property so my dad can come to my courtyard. And then a friend went ahead and made it Corbin to his father as well. And it was a slippery slope. Basically, what the Jewish tradition was saying is, if you said someone is excluded from enjoying what I've got here because now it's committed to God, that person never is allowed to enjoy it. And in this case, it brought dishonor to the father and mother, and the Jewish tradition would not let that change. And like those kind of things began to happen in the Jewish tradition. And Jesus is saying, you're called, Moses said in the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, yet you've created a law that, re- that refuses to allow them to honor their father and mother, even when they've made a foolish vow. Jesus is saying, who's wrong now? And you're mad that my disciples aren't washing their hands? You're blatantly rebelling against God. Jesus is upset because their authority has changed. No longer was it God's word, but it became the traditions of men. Church, this is something that we've got to really guard against in our very lives. Because when the Bible teaches us something, that is the standard by which we live by. And if we develop traditions that undermine God's authority, our hearts are just as filthy as the Pharisees, even if we put things in order in our lives. And this is ultimately what happened to the church a few hundred years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. In fact, in the Catholic church, this was developed. This is how the Pope has the authority he has. This is why Mary is deified, like she's, she's seen to be almost like God. This is why various other traditions like purgatory were developed. The Bible doesn't speak of purgatory. When you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell, and it's all dependent on how you have chosen to put your faith in Jesus in this life or not. In the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, the Mass was given in Latin, And they wouldn't give it in the language that the people understood because the tradition says that the Latin was the proper language. The Bible wasn't translated into the language of the people, but kept in Latin because that was the holy language. And for century after century, tradition began to subvert the word of God. And before you knew it, people didn't have Bibles in their hands because they couldn't read the Latin. They didn't understand the worship services because they didn't know Latin. They couldn't have the cup in the Lord's Supper because if they spilled the cup, they were spilling the blood of Jesus. The Pope had authority to determine things, and the church was a wreck. And in our church, in the Protestant church, something dramatic happened in the 16th century that we all need to know about. There was a man by the name of Martin Luther who saw the problems in the Catholic church and realized that the Bible was no longer the authority by which we lived by. And as he became a university professor, he started teaching the book of Psalms and the book of Romans, and he's realizing, wait a minute, 
the Bible is teaching something different than we're practicing in the local church. So we've got a problem here. So on October 31st, 1517, Luther wrote down 95 theses, 95 statements saying, hey, we've got to recheck these things out. We had to get back to the drawing board because God's word is no longer our authority. He took the 95 theses, he nailed them on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, to discuss these things. And then someone took those 95 theses, translated them into all kinds of language, and now what is known as the Protestant Reformation began. And one of Luther's greatest passions was to see God's word freed. So that God's people would have God's word in their language so they can study it in their own language and worship God in a tongue that they understood. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. Where tradition begins to subvert the authority of the Bible. And it's a problem. God's word goes from a two-edged sword to a butter knife. It goes from living and active to dead and dumb. But Jesus says God's word is the authority, and he's bothered by the Pharisees and the scribes for putting traditions of men over God. So Jesus calls them out. And isn't it ironic that in verse 13 he says, Thus you make void the word of God, when in Isaiah God says that his word would never return void. Jesus says the religious leaders are making God's word powerless. Church, this is why we preach the Bible at the brook. We don't want to give you the opinions of people. We want to teach you what God says because God has spoken to us. Well, Jesus says, you have a problem with the purity of my disciples, but let me tell you the truth about purity and what it means to be pure and impure. Verse 14, he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand this. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus is saying, you can eat food with dirty hands, and that doesn't make you a dirty person. It's your heart's condition that makes you sinful before God. Verse 17, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Poor disciples, man. They're just like three steps behind Jesus always. I really relate to that sometimes. You know, I hear they're like, God, Jesus, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. Jesus is like, really? I mean, you've been with me for how long? You still don't get what I'm saying? He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and it is expelled. Jesus, you eat food, it gets in your body, and it leaves your body. It doesn't make you dirty. And thus, by doing so, he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, can you say within? Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And those are the things that defile a person. See, what Jesus did was he turned things around. He says that religious leaders were consumed with washing of hands. 
And Jesus says, it's our hearts that need to be addressed. This is a great problem with traditions. Because you can change your exterior. You can look great. You can play the role of a hypocrite. But it will not address your heart. Only one thing can. And that is the gospel of Jesus. The good news that Jesus has come to live in perfection, which you cannot be living in perfection. And these sins that Jesus lists here are the kinds of sins Jesus took upon himself on the cross. So God says, you can wash your hands. You can take a shower. You can put on a show but only Jesus can take care of your sin problem. And this is why Jesus was so upset. We're real people, and out of our hearts come all kinds of things. Jesus mentioned some dozen of them here. He says evil thoughts. The word thoughts is evil schemes or machinations or ideas. And in case people don't understand, like, well, what kind of evil things come out of our, us, Jesus? Jesus is like, well, let me list them out for you. And he gives 12 of them. He says, they come from your heart. See, in English language, the heart is where our emotions come, right? We feel something in our heart. Our heart goes out to somebody. But in Greek and in the Hebrew language, the heart was not just where your emotions, but also where your intellect and your will was found. This is where the Bible says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead in Romans 10, 9. And so Jesus says, it's our heart where these evil thoughts and these evil things come from. He mentions them here. He doesn't give a definition of them. But basically what he wants us to do is to see the weight of the fact that we're sinful people. And what we need to know is how God has sent his son Jesus to deal with these very things in our hearts. See, he says sexual immorality The Greek word is porneia, from which we get pornography. And that's sex outside of marriage. It's fornication. And Jesus says these things come from an impure heart. God designed sex for marriage and to be preserved within the marriage union between one husband and one wife for all times. And when we go beyond that, either as a single or as a married, it is a sinful thing that stems from our hearts. Jesus says theft, murder, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, even foolishness. You act a fool, that's wrong. And we're like, man, I'm, I'm, uh, foolishness? And Jesus is saying, well, the opposite of foolishness is wisdom. And wisdom comes from the fear of God. So what Jesus is doing here, he's helping us see. He's helping us see that we are broken people who have a heart issue. And we can't cleanse ourselves. Church, this is why we need the Bible in our lives, to instruct us according to God's ways. And the way we got to do is say, every day I'm going to read my Bible, not as a tradition, not as something that's going to make me better, but God, I need you to instruct my heart. So when I'm envious of somebody, when I'm coveting, when I'm wanting what others have, I'm realizing, God, you've given me everything. Because the Bible tells me that. When I'm being foolish, God, give me wisdom. And goes on and on and on. The Bible instructs us, church. We can't let tradition, we can't let other people's opinions, we can't let our own opinions be the authority in our lives. 
And for that, Jesus says, turn to the word of God. And the gospel that Jesus, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is what frees us in God's ways. My great prayer, church, is that we would be people who realize we don't have to put on a front, that we haven't got to pretend, but that we come before God broken, messed up, and find his restoration, his forgiveness, and then the power to live a life that honors him. And that's what we're here for together, church. And I know uh, there are always some of us here today who don't know the power of Jesus to bring forgiveness, to bring healing in our lives. And the very point of the book of Mark is to point us to this death and resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus paid for our sin to give us life. And my prayer is that you would see this Jesus and you put your faith in him, that you'd believe in him and receive the life he offers to us. And it all begins by putting our faith in him and our trust in him. When a moment our worship team is going to come on up and our prayer team will come up as well. And I want us to think as they do that, in what ways are you trusting God? In what ways is God the authority of your life? Or in what ways are there other things being the authority of your life? And so worship team, come on up. Prayer team, would you come up? Let's rise to our feet, church. Prayer team, come to the front and to the back. I want to pray and ask God to help us search our hearts to find rest in Jesus and to be committed to his standard for our lives and not what we deem to be our, the standard for our lives. So let's pray together, church. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you don't tell us that we've got to put on a show. God, we don't have to pretend to be something we're not. And Lord, I know sometimes that's hard, God, because we we don't want to come across as someone who's in need of your grace. But God, truly, that's our place. That's where we're at. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rest in the words of Jesus, that we would rest in the good news of Jesus, and that when we see that our hearts and we see all the sin in it, when we, when we see our evil thoughts exposed, that we realize that we don't have to be the ones to take care of that, but that Jesus has taken care of it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would put our faith in you, Jesus. That we would trust you to cleanse us and to purify us from our hearts. And that, Lord, from that place we would live our lives. Lord, I pray that we would understand that when we fail, that we could come to you and receive your forgiveness. God, free us. Free us from the bondage of the opinions of others. Free us from the bondage of being someone we're not. And let us rest in you today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Want it to be the authority in our lives. So help us to that end, even today and in the week ahead of us, to pour over the scriptures, maybe to pick a book of the Bible and just read from start to finish this week, maybe to memorize a verse to help us in our Christian faith. Lord, let us have the Word of God renew our minds 
and instruct our lives. So Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, as I mentioned, our prayer team, they're in the front and they're in the back. We do this every week because we know that every week we come with different things in our hearts. We know that every week God speaks to us in different ways through the songs, through the message, through our time together. And we believe in the power of prayer because God is powerful. So our prayer team is here to pray for you for whatever is on your heart. So please come forward during this song. Just let them know what's going on. Let them know how they can pray for you. Let them pray for you on the spot. Don't leave today with a burden on your heart. But walk out of this room saying, God, I'm giving it over to Jesus. So let's lift our voices together as God invites us to his altar and surrender.